Welcome to the Aesthetic Entrepreneurs GSD, the number one podcast for aesthetic and beauty business owners who want to get stuff done and become the entrepreneurs the world needs them to be. Many of you out there are uncertain, overwhelmed, and confused about this thing called business. Where there's uncertainty, we give you comfort. Where there's overwhelm, we create calm. Where there's confusion, we provide clarity. Um, just a moment, we went live then, eh? She was like, ah. Um, right. So, hi guys, welcome to Aesthetic Entrepreneurs Get Shit Done uh, podcast. It's Richard Crawford Small on a, on a beautiful, bright Monday morning. Um, today, I am honoured to have with us uh, Dale Needham, who is the MD of a company called Dermalux LED in the UK. Um, welcome, Dale. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> Hi. So I asked Dale to join us um, for a couple of reasons. One is he's a pretty impressive entrepreneur, I must say. And I enjoy, you know, we enjoy talking uh, about the entrepreneurial things of this. Um, it's got an incredible backstory, um, but also he's been quite deeply involved in certain tech that has really kind of helped the um during this current sort of COVID pandemic. So those are the things we're going to touch on. So Dale, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Yourself? Yeah, surviving, I think. Um, <laughs> that's probably, actually, do you know what, thinking about it, that's probably the worst thing I could have said. But um, we're, we're doing all right. We're doing okay. So I like to let people introduce themselves. But we've known each other for a couple of years in the, you know, the aesthetic market in the UK. But you've got, you know, a, a history that, goes way way past that so tell us a little bit about yourself yeah sure so not everybody knows but I've actually been with Dermot since 2015 um, I was behind the scenes for the first couple of years really working on the technology and progressing things really mm. um, anybody who's close to the business will know that we've gone through a, a massive change in the last couple of years we've brought new products to the market um, it's been quite an exciting period for us, really. But to give you a bit of a bit of background on myself, um, I've worked in LEDs now for about 14 years. I um, started off really when the white light market started to take off in terms of general lighting. So you, your lights that you get in the ceiling at home, general office lighting. Um, that was really the turning point of LED technology because mm. the fundamental science behind the construction of that LED is what determines everything that we have now as LED, whether it be in aesthetics or, or medical devices or whether it's in your TVs, your mobile phones, generalizing, it's everywhere. Um, I kind of led a bit of a diverse career, if you will, in the earlier days. So some of the earlier applications that I was involved in was around uh, defense weaponry using uh, LED light. Then was working on rolling stock. Um, in 2009 slash 2010, headhunted to go and work for a nanomaterials business so uh, that was exciting because obviously led had been coming around with white leds for about four years or so and then started the business said forget everything you know this is the future in fact i had a guy waving a test tube at me so uh bought into that and uh, it was it was great basically we, we took the business forward and really started to push the sort of the boundaries of science and photonics and what i learned over that period of time was 
everything basically is a, is a result of a requirement of light. So whether it's basically if it's in human cells, plant cells, we need light to survive. We need light to work. Um, it's everywhere. So it was quite exciting actually to go through that process and actually how you can apply photonics in different applications. And then 2015, uh, myself and Hugh Anthony, uh, we got together. So Hugh Anthony is the CEO of Thermalux. Got together, we talked about the issues in the marketplace, talked about what we needed to do with LED lighting to take the, the product and the business forward. And really, we hit go. And it's been, mm. been quite exciting, really. It's been a, I say, it's been a wild ride. Cause it's, I think sort of taking, taking it back a little bit is, I remember the sort of the LED revolution. And as you said, it was kind of, you know, replay, everybody's houses replaced with, with LEDs. Um, and then from that, I suppose the next sort of thing that we realised is when they came into televisions. Yeah, no one else is Elliot. And it, that, that was a bit of a game changer for me in terms of my career and actually um, the industry in itself. I mean, a lot of people don't know this behind TV. So we all remember the big box units that you used to have in your, t- in your lounge mm-hmm. and they fill up half your room, that sort of thing. And it was yeah. smaller and smaller. But really through the application of LED we managed to reduce CFL technology in, in TVs right down to LED. And then the next stage was obviously OLED. Mm. Now everybody sees OLED on the market, and that's going to be the next generation of materials. Well, there's a competing technology out there that's actually uh, quantum dots, uh, so the nanomaterials that I used to work in. And in that, it's replacing the phosphor technology that's in LEDs that you find in the traditional backlit LED TV and changing that basically you've got uh, very small particles in about 100,000 times smaller strand of hair. And the idea being is that in that, you can size select the wavelength that comes out of the LED to give you a truer color. So it starts to be a competing technology to OLED. And so much so that basically uh, manufacturers such as Samsung, you take a look at their devices, they use quantum dot technology. And in that, there's basically vibrant colors, great intensity, great picture from a display, which has actually been used as a drop-in solution to current manufacturing techniques and has done away with OLED technology in the process. So OLED is now old tech? I believe so. So you, oh. can, get, you can get very basic OLEDs, you can get very advanced OLEDs. It all depends on your application. OLED really, to me, there's, there's a bit of a trade-off between the price for R&D and about performance that comes out of it, and then actually scalability from a production point. And obviously, this is all my opinion. Mm. But really, the quantum dot solution was very much a drop-in solution to an existing production method that enabled you to have the same polarity and quality of colour that an OLED would give you. So really, all of that learning that I had in the process in terms of the photonics and nanosciences has been completely applicable to what I'm doing now with Dermalux. And uh, it gave me a bit of a, a, bit of a, uh, a stepping stone, if you will, into mm. what we're doing. I think, you know, from a, from a technological point of view, I think it's incredible how, you know, I suppose if you look at how, um, you know, microprocessors, I think, you know, there's, they sort of double in capacity, double in power every couple of years. And I think we've yeah. sort of seen the similar sort of thing in visual technologies as well. Personally, on a side note, um, I'm not going to miss OLED because my, my TV has got black spots all over it. I'm not yeah. impressed. Uh, yeah. I won't name any manufacturers, but not happy at all, frankly. Um, <laughs> So I'm not, not so good with that one. <laughs> yeah, so I will. I'll be. I look forward to the next tech, so I can upgrade my TV. Um, but um, but also, I think you know. The, the, but what's what's what do you think is driving this? I mean, is it is it a desire for for commercial 
obviously, you know, commercial uh, applications is one thing, but you know, there's always things more than that that driving this. I mean, what's sort of pushing this? Really, it was to, to make a difference, make a change. And I know mm. that, that sounds like everybody will say something along that lines, but really, with Dermalux and the products that Dermalux offer, you see that change. So mm. life-changing differences in results. Um, so we've got hundreds of um, different results across all varying conditions now where, honestly, it doesn't matter if you've been in business one year or five years. Every time you see a customer coming back with life-changing results at a skin level, mm. that's, that's why we do what we do. And that's why we strive to do more of what we do. So people listening, they may well be familiar with, obviously, LED technologies in, uh, you know, in lighting and TV, but maybe not quite familiar with, you know, the application of LEDs in, um, you know, with humans. So can you give us a little bit of a background about that? Yeah, sure. So the the application of LED with skincare, so uh, LED phototherapy, the idea is it's about... uh, some of the basic level uh, work on it is rejuvenation, so stimulation mm-hmm. of collagen, uh, repairing and healing of skin cells. So depending on obviously the manufacturer that you, you're familiar with, obviously uh, certain manufacturers will lay claims to basic conditions, others more advanced, and that's to do with basically the overall light that you can produce mm-hmm. per second. So we are going too detailed on it. It's all about skin maintenance and skin healing is the mm-hmm. process really, um, depending on on what skin condition is. So if you're looking at things like acne, you've got the antibacterial light that's on there in terms of killing surface level bacteria. And then you've got the red at 633 and the infrared at 830 to help stimulate the, the healing process and the rejuvenation of cells. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't go too detailed, but mm-hmm. uh, the idea being is that by using certain variations of light in combination together over a set course of treatments, you can have a non-invasive therapy to have life-changing results. Mm-hmm. That's a very succinct way of putting it. I like it. There you go. So obviously where we are at the moment with, um, so for those of you listening to us, you know, you're 20 years into the future. It's May the 4th, 2020. uh, And we're currently not allowed out. We're in the middle of the COVID pandemic. It's lockdown. And, you know, as a result, sort of, you know, businesses such as yourselves have been affected very dramatically. Your client stores are closed not allowed to shipping anything. So how are you guys coping as a, as a business? So we, we've done a few things, actually. Um, even though clients' doors are closed, I actually think it's given an opportunity to client, uh, sorry, to business owners to actually reach out. So we've actually had a, a big influx of clients calling us and wanting refresher and updates on training, access to marketing materials. They're already working on businesses about how they're going to realign themselves for reopening. Um, obviously, we've had to be very quick to respond to that. Obviously, we, we didn't quite anticipate um, the, the volumes of inquiries that we've been getting through, so it's been difficult to manage with initially, but we're sort, uh, sorted on that now. Um, and we've carried on. Um, one thing that we have done different and, we, and we've promoted to our existing clients is that just because the door is closed doesn't mean that you can't still work with your clients and you can't still basically be trying to sell to your clients maintain them keep them coming back the whole retention piece um one thing that we've done that's actually been quite successful is we've actually offered the flex um out to each of our clients now in now uh, what we've done is we've said to talent look if you've got 10 15 clients that are working on a skin concern and they want to maintain whilst they're whilst they're in lockdown and you still want to bring them back to the clinic thereafter 
here is the device. We'll sell you the mm. device, basically uh, we'll knock our price down so you can make a good margin on the device. And from that, you can then move this onto your clients. Now by doing so, that means that one, that client's now got the potential to do top-ups in between treatments when we reopened. So let's say mm. we're six months down the line, clinics are fully running again, and your client's coming back in every couple of weeks for, for an LED treatment. That now means that they can use the Flex at home because it's certified to do so. And by doing so, they can actually maintain the higher, the higher energy treatments that they would actually get in clinic. Mm -hmm. Right now, the benefit of that is clinic owners are getting some revenue through the door. Um, you're actually keeping engaged with your current client base and you're actually uh, able to start to sign them up for future sales based on reopening. Mm. I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting pivot. And I think one of the things you sort of, you know, you mentioned is about it's still the opportunity to work with your clients. The door is closed. And I think this has thrown lots of things open. So, you know, yeah. if you look at it from a, from an industry wide perspective, you know, you and I have sort of spoken about all of this is it's a, the, the play, playing field is now level and, yeah. you know, a clinic with a no marketing budget now has exactly the same opportunity as a clinic with a 500,000 pound marketing budget. Exactly. So the opportunity, actually they have more opportunity because they're probably not furloughed whereas the other guys are so communication is still there i think there's been a a, a fear i think it's probably the right word of sales that yeah. because of what's been going on in the market and obviously you know out there's humanitarian and medical issues as well as economic um that it's inappropriate to sell and the sort of responses that you've had to selling what is quite a relatively high ticket item would actually completely dispute that yeah, um, I mean, we do sell. Obviously, we've got a range of uh, range of products across a whole range of pricing. So, obviously, the very top end of products being the Tri-Wave MD, naturally, right now in lockdown, you are going to see a bit of a decline. We've mm. still got a lot of interest for it, if I'm honest, because business owners are looking about how they're going to re-strategize re and remarket mm. as a business to actually either recover clients that they've had or what they're going to do in terms of having um, distancing between them and the clients. I mean, yeah. To be honest, that's one of the great things about the Dermalux um, treatment. You can deliver a treatment without actually being anywhere near the patient. Mm. So you've actually got the ability with the device to bring the device into the patient, set them up, run a full 20-minute, 30-minute course, depending on what you're doing, and actually maintain a bit of social distancing. The client will feel comfortable with it, as will the practitioner, the employees, and as a result, the business will benefit from it. Mm. Mm. And then, I mean, but also the at-home device, the Flex, yeah. has, you know, if people are sort of, I get concerns from sort of clients saying, well, you know, are people buying, are people still spending? You know, I think that's probably true, is they are still doing that. Yeah, they are still spending. Um, to be honest, we've probably seen more sales in the lockdown period of the at-home equipment on the basis that uh, people are wanting to do it, they're wanting to fill their time up. I mean, it's actually a great device to low-cost, you want to bring something, you want to try it, you're not familiar with LED. It's a great piece of equipment to actually have a go with at home, use it yourself, see the results. And then I always stand by the belief of, if you believe in something so much so, it will sell itself. And that's basically what the Flex will do. You'll start to see that if you can do that with the Flex, imagine what you can do with the other devices. Yeah, no, I like that. It's if you, uh, yeah, and I think people are still buying. Um, and they're still, yeah. you know, you're at home, you're bored. Amazon yep. are getting hammered. People are spending stuff. Um, I tried to buy a turbo trainer 
the other day. <laughs> right, just what I wanted to talk to you know what, this is boring. I'm going to try and plug my mountain bike into something so I can do something else. Yeah. Um, you can't get a turbo trainer at all anywhere, right? So yeah. um, even the really expensive ones, the 700 quid turbo trainers, are sold out. So people yeah. are buying at-home treatments, skincare, all of these things. You know, it's... It's it's, an, it's amazing. It's a, it's for me looking at this from a, a social commentary point of view and a kind of a, a market analysis point of view. I don't think anybody should ever be afraid of asking their clients for money ever again because they're yeah. spending now. And if you right. sat there going, "Oh, I'm not sure if my clients will invest in a hundred pound course of treatments," yeah, this well, I think, is yeah. I think, well, I think that now's the time to to replan really and, and mm. actually like I say, maintain the communication with clients. Yeah, definitely. So what else have you been doing in the um, this period? I give you've been quite heavily involved in the, the sort of government's request for, for ventilators. Yeah, so, uh, so it's an interesting story, that, actually. So um, to give you the short version of it, um, back in March, obviously, when we heard about the, the government's request for ventilators or support for the ventilator call, um, myself and Hugh got together and pretty much decided between ourselves what, we're a 13485 business, so a medical device business. Um, we're one of the few companies in the UK that actually has full R&D design and development um, departments within the business. Everything we produce is manufactured on site. So we kind of felt like we, it, it was on us to actually go out and actually try and actually help fulfill this requirement. Now, we were involved in some of the earlier development work that you've seen uh, publicised in the press with those businesses. As things progressed, we actually got a free issue design uh, through to us. So it sounds like job done with its free issues. really wasn't. Turns out the device hasn't been in production for a number of years, and that comes with a whole chain of different issues with procurement of parts. So we spent really about four weeks reverse engineering the device. Um, mm. now, not to add to the complexity of it, but I'm talking about circuit board level where no designs existed for it. So we've had to completely review the design of it, work out the componentry, try and find dropping replacements for parts that no longer exist, the parts that have reached end of life and are never going to be available again, work out how we design a way around it. Um, solenoid valves, um, airlines, basically sealed units for, for yeah. airports, so motors that blow air through, for example. Um, I cut my finger open nicely whilst trying to open the, one of those that I got off, uh, got off uh, the internet, but uh, we did it. Um, I'll be honest, I think week two, week three, I was having a conversation with Hugh and I said, look, I'm confident that we can do this, but I don't know if we can do it in the time frame. Um, mm. every, day, every day I open up my computer at 6 a.m. in the morning, there's another hurdle, there's another issue. A supplier can't sort this out or a supplier basically hasn't seen this part in two or three years. It's it's things like that. And to be honest, we, we carried on and we carried on down that process. And up until last Monday, um, basically we weren't sure if it was all going to come together that's the first time we built the device and put it through um, through the test really uh, actually we realised successfully we'd managed to uh, to take a product from effectively a few pieces of paper and, and an idea actually to a, a physical product so uh, we're quite proud of ourselves really especially in the, in the time that's incredible you should be proud of yourself and I think listening to stories like that I just kind of throws me back to the sort of stories you hear about the space program in the 60s where it was just kind of like you know 60 percent of the technology has to be invented before you yeah. can even actually start doing anything with it well this is it i mean to give you an idea of it um ventilators companies are probably producing maybe 30 40 000 a year i am um, so some of the bigger companies 
and they'll sell them globally. So it sounds like a lot of units. Hmm. Then we actually start to work out that the global pandemic and the number of ventilators that each country requires, all of a sudden those four or five major players in ventilators across the market are saying, well, I now need that per month. Yeah. And then the suppliers of these parts are inside. So, for example, uh, I've grown any names of the supplier, but there's a valve on the inside of each unit. Now, that valve manufacturer seems to have a valve in every major ventilator across the market. The minute that the market starts to require 50,000 ventilators per manufacturer for mm. the same valve, it doesn't matter how many people you throw, uh, throw that. Parts aren't available. Production lines aren't set up for it. You can't get the number of ventilators out. So you have to get creative. You have yeah. to find a way around it and come up with a new solution. And that was our problem. And that's what we solved. That's incredible. So what's the next step with these then? So next step with this now really is basically uh, we're looking at market demand. So obviously we've, we've been working with, uh, with the government, if you will, in terms of what we want to produce and what we can do in terms of capabilities. And those conversations are still ongoing. Um, what we are seeing though is an influx of inquiries from overseas markets. So our mm. distributor market and our contacts and I'm trying to uh, use the product we've developed to help serve their own local needs. Um, we've been speaking with a couple of companies over in the States who also want us to try and support their production line efforts. Obviously, given the fact that basically where we are all in-house, it's a very low risk um, option for them to basically to adopt us to help them as well. So uh, we'll see, still, still early days, but um, I'm very positive that we're going to see some big things out. Uh, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, hats off to you for one, for taking the project on, two, for you know, crossing all of the problems that came across it because there's a well-known Hoover manufacturer who couldn't quite manage it. So, yeah. um, you know, it's it's well, obviously not something that's straightforward. Well, this is it. And, and to be honest, there's a lot of companies out there who have come up with different versions of a device. Now, while we could all make a potential ventilator from, say, like the airbags that you can squeeze and, and different methods, if you actually start to sit down with a design remit of what a ventilator is, you start to realize actually what the complexity is involved. Now, to give you an idea of it, um, the airbags that you would squeeze, so if you have a look, there was a hoop, I won't name names, but there was a Hoover manufacturer that was using effectively a piston to squeeze the airbag to force the air out and then basically mm-hmm. be bumped. Great. The only problem with that, though, is everything was manually adjusted in terms of airflow, air supply, to try and regulate how much air was going into the human lungs. Um, from that point, though, there was no alarm system. So it was down to human error and human attention as to whether that system was being effective for the patient. So it would mm. never pass medical guidelines. So in terms of testing standards. So when you start to think about that, then also you start to think, well, okay, it needs alarming systems in there. So I need to be measuring how much air I'm outputting from the device. But I also need to know if the patient's responsive. So you then need alarming systems to detect whether the patient's actually breathing the air mm. back. Yeah. And if the patient isn't breathing the air back, you then need to go from what is forced air, so in terms of almost a bit like the CPAP you'll see in the news, mm. to actual ventilation mode where it's forcing the air into the lungs, but it's then also drawing the air back out of the lungs again. And it's measuring the capacity of the lungs in terms of basically the force of air that it takes to blow them up, and it will self-regulate based on the person on its own. So it's taking the human air out of it and becoming more of a standalone solution. The other option with that, um, which goes into it, so to go into the complexity side of it, uh, simple things. What happens if we lose power? So mm. how do you keep that device running? So it needs battery backup. How long is the battery going to last for? 12 hours. Then you need um, basically fault detection on the battery system. So you start going through all these little pieces to tick all the standards off. And you start mm. to realize, actually, 
a ventilator isn't a simple design. And while any engineering firm out there could produce a ventilator, you need a 13485 system in place to actually to be able to ensure you can check all those boxes and know correctly that the end of line produced unit meets the standards and is compliant today in a year's time and in two years time. Mm -hmm. The 13485 is a quality assessment process. It is, yeah. So it's, it's effectively an ISO standard. So mm -hmm. um, the idea being is that it controls everything we do. Um, maybe a little bit too much in some instances, but I think that comes down to uh, to just varying businesses. But everything from purchasing of components. So when we when we place a purchase order, for example, we know when we placed it, who we placed it with, what the batch numbers will be on parts that have come in, how those batch numbers of parts are then applied to products. So simple things right down to circuit boards that we get delivered in. Each one of them has an individual ID number. We know what product that ID number uh, PCB has gone into. We know what components are on that PCB. We know the batches of those components that go on the PCB. And then say, God forbid, in four or five years, there was ever a fault. With our internal systems, we can actually have a, a, an automatic call out in the system to tell us that X percentage of units have failed within the batch. We need to go for a full recall. And it would tell us exactly where in the world all these devices are at who we need to contact and how long we've been in service for. And we can recall all of that. And that, that's what a 13485 system will give you is complete traceability, not just on the product, but actually the business. So who has the devices, when's it processed, in, invoices, communication flow, CRM linking, a whole lot. It's, it's incredible. I'm sort of sitting here thinking, blimey, you know, I've got my daughter's laptop in pieces on the kitchen table and I'm struggling with that. But, yeah. um, you know, you've, you've blown me away. But then you have the resources in place, you know, and, and you know, yeah. the, the structure and the process. And also it's a kind of, I think it's probably a case of the right person in the right place at the yeah. right time yeah. with the right problem. Exactly. I, I'm quite fortunate, uh, to be honest, that the board uh, as a collective, we made the decision that we were going to invest into the business. And by doing so, mm -hmm. that's not just on uh, equipment and facilities and, and whatnot. It's actually in staff is having high standard, high quality staff in the business that they're, they're um, self-motivated. They want to go out and learn more. So the minute that you put a project like the ventilator in front of them, everybody's involved. Everybody wants to be doing it. Everybody's talking. And at which point when you've got that um, level of personnel working, it's just about monitoring and tracking communication flow. And it's about being able to manage the projects as a whole and make sure that everybody is working efficiently. And because we can do that, that's what makes us different as a business. It's awesome. And I think, you know, it's, it's a great <coughs> testament to you know, the business leadership, but right the way through, um, you know, this is why we're proud to have you on our kind of alliance partners as, you know, shared vision and values. And I think, you know, at times like this, people step up and the right people step up and thank you for doing that and, oh, and, um, and going for that. The only question I'll ask you is after all of this is done, can you build me an R2D2, please? I could try. <laughs> it is May the 4th. It is Star Wars Day. I'm certainly thinking, I bet you could make a killer R2-D2. I'll make a story when I can make a ventilator, but I can't make an R2-D2. <laughs> I know. Just like, what's going on? <laughs> awesome. So, um, yeah, incredible insight into into um, how this whole kind of process is being, you know, being managed from sort of way behind the scenes, in a fact, in a way yeah. that I didn't really, really consider that, you know, you think, everybody sort of you know 
getting upset about where, why we haven't got enough ventilators. And you do sort of consider that actually it's the back end supply ish challenges, having to completely reinvent ways of doing things. You know, this it's the word unprecedented has been thrown around a lot and it's kind of times like this that make you realize that that is actually the right word. Um, I mean, one, one thing that I found interesting from my point is that I've always personally said that manufacturing needs to take place in the UK. So I, I'm very proud of the fact that 95% of components that we produce um, basically in the Dermot's products are made in the UK. Mm-hmm. So um, there's certain components, for example, that you can't make in the UK because we're just not geared up. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. where you go or where you look. The business doesn't exist. But what it has raised to me is that I think in this process, there needs to be a big pull on actually bringing manufacturing back inshore and actually mm. trying to do more here in the UK. And I'm not talking about basic um, steel cutting or bending and, and whatnot. I'm, I'm meaning more down the actual technological route and looking at um, full electronics manufacturing, um, micro componentry, that sort of thing. It, it will take mm. a lot of money to do that. It will take uh, the will of business to do it because the problem is you won't have the expertise. You seem very good at being innovating and innovative with technology, but you kind of have that point where it then steps over and says, but we're sending it to Asia to produce. Yeah. yeah. What this is highlighted for me is that we need to stop that and or not do it as much, basically. You're um, right. I mean, there, there are going to be a lot of things that aren't the same after this. And I think, you know, what you're talking about there, I mean, if we take the political aspects of it completely out of it, but, you know, what you're talking about there, like you say, it's the desire of business. It's not only that, it's desire of education. And that's, for that yeah. to happen, that's a process that's effectively has to start right now in primary school, you know, yeah. to enable, because one of the challenges I've always thought is we don't, one, we don't tend to produce enough people with maths. It's the math skills, it's the physics, you know, it's the the technological understanding if you like yeah. to be able to excel at that level when it gets to sort of you know the upper levels of understanding and um problem solving to a degree yeah. um it'd be great for us to be able to do that i you know i agree with you completely yeah i think i think the whole education sets up a completely different conversation altogether if i'm honest mm. um, yeah I mean, obviously, I've done quite a bit of work with varying schools in the past around technology, um, applied physics and so on. And in it, I'm finding that you can end up being limited by what the the educational board are wanting to actually give to students based on what mm. they know and what can be accepted. And then actually what facilities they've got available to them in the school as well. So you can have one school where, say, like in year seven, they can be sat there and programming their computers. Mm. Whereas in other schools, they wouldn't actually touch on that until maybe year 10 or year 11 in basic yeah. form. And there does, there does become a big difference. I mean, I know that person myself from my own background of when I grew up. I, mm. I noticed a big difference when I went to university and did my first degree in engineering that there was a big range of skills and abilities based on where they come, where everyone had come from in the country and what, mm. what amenities they'd have available to them. Really. Yeah, I can understand that. So, yeah, this. I think there are many, many cha- changes that will come out of this and um, it's going to take, off, I think, a while for it all to drip through. But, um, but yeah, we could talk raises about all that. But this is fantastic insight. Thank you very much um, for sharing it with us. And to say, uh, you know, you, Hugh, I like you both very, very much. Um, great company to work with. Um, and um, to, here's your ongoing success. No, thank you. Thanks very right. much. Now, before you go, okay. we have... The 10 most important questions in the world. 
Go ahead. After forget about everything you just learned, this is literally the most important question. So, ten questions, quick fire answers. Um, if the interest, if the responses are interesting, we may stop and talk a little bit more about it. But um, are you ready? Go for it. Okay, Beatles or Elvis? Beatles. Really? Yeah. Actually, I can tell you. I can tell you. Yeah. You I'm not old enough for Elvis. You seem like a Beatles man. <laughs> <laughs> Superman or Batman? Batman. Definitely. Night Owl or Early Bird? I reckon I'm both. I think I have a problem with going to bed. Yeah, don't sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Apple or Android? Apple. Okay, from, right, from a technologist's point of view, why? I think I got tied into uh, basically not Apple as a brand, but actually just the interface. And um, mm. if I were to try and move to, say, uh, an Android phone with Samsung now, I think I'd spend more time actually trying to understand it and move everything from one phone to another. And it's just time I haven't got, I haven't yeah. got, you know, uh, I spend more time trying to work out the squiggly way of getting into the phone. <laughs> just look at, I watch people do it. I'm just like, I'm never, ever, ever going to be doing that. Yeah. So that's, 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 that's the entry point for me. Block. Well done. Okay. Apple play PlayStation or Xbox. Xbox. Really? Yeah. 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 Just, I think Xbox cause I grew what we want. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair, fair, fair enough. enough. I've just, uh, I know, it's my birthday next week and I know what I'm getting. It's a Nintendo 64. Ah, nice. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I don't, I, my kids ask me, so you'll come play PlayStation. And I look at it and I just take, I say, I can't be asked. I really can't be asked to set all that up and then ha- I just can't be bothered. So I just like plug it in, turn it on, play it, job done. Yeah. Um, what's the song you, what's your favorite movie? Sorry. I don't really have a favourite movie, if I'm honest. I, I like action movies, but I very rarely get to sit down and actually just watch a movie. It's normally uh, half an hour here, half an hour there, and that's it. All right, so what's, what's your favourite opening 30 minutes of a movie? <laughs> uh, probably, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the uh, Fast and Furious. Sorry, sorry. You know, fast cars and everything like that. Um, and then uh, the other one is uh, Gone in 60 Seconds. That's a good film, actually. Uh, okay, you like car chase movies, then? Oh yeah, yeah. Fast and Furious. After I'm not massively into them. This it, it was the one, the one I really I did quite like was um, when Dwayne Johnson came into the franchise. Yeah, and there was this big face off between him and Dominic Toretto. Yeah. And if you look at the zoom out, Vin Diesel stood on a crate. He stood on a beer crate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is one of those funny. I was like, yeah, he's not that yeah. tall. Yeah. Pulls back, he's still on a beer crate. Jesus, funny. Um, what's the song you rock out to? Oh, it's either going to be a bit of ACDC or um, Ace of Spades, that sort of thing. Ah, mo- a Motorhead man. I like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we don't get many of those, too many of those here. No, I um, No, well, big fan. Just turn it on and away you go. Good man. I like Motorhead. Um, sun or snow? Sun. Definitely yeah. sun. Don't yeah. do snow. Yeah. Go to business book. So it might sound a little bit boring, but I quite like the uh, the HBR articles. So uh, Harvard Business Review. Yeah. Uh, especially some of the strategy books. They're quite good. So if you ever get a chance to have a look at things like uh, Michael Porter, um, that's quite interesting. Gives you a bit mm. of a, a different way to look at things, really, from a business point. Mm. Michael Porter, out of Porter's Five Forces. That's it. Yeah. 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 No, HBR, quite, I did read quite a lot of them when I was earlier in my career, but I think... Um, they were really, I mean, in terms of value for money, I mean, it's like 100 quid for a year's subscription. Um, yeah. You know, almost every single one gives you a cracking idea. 
But this was it. I mean, obviously, I, I came familiar with HBR when I did my MBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was always good. A few interesting articles, a few sort of maybe a little bit too far away from where we were as a business. But it, it's good because it, I felt that they put it in such a way that you could actually read it, understand what the, the author was writing about, and then actually how you then can apply it to your own business. Yeah, no, I, I like that sort of thing. I think it's really good a way also of getting a much broader perspective because I think it's very easy to get kind of siloed on yeah. what's happening in your sector and your business and you miss out on so many different things. I mean, I learned from one of the Harvard Business Review things I've got um, is about how IMAX, you know, restructured their business to go in from, and it was actually when they took it all down to, it was content. They brought in a, an expert to say, right, well, no, why does no one watch IMAX movies? And they picked one particular one, which was, okay, it's about beautifully shot, but it's about, you know, dinosaurs and it's not historically accurate. So therefore it doesn't capture the um, paleontologists and it's boring. Yeah. So no one comes to watch it. So you need to get feature films onto IMAX. It sounds like real common sense. This is it, but you've got to break it down. But you have to break it down. And it all started with content. And that was one of the articles that made me start thinking about actually doesn't really matter, you know, like you say, from from your LED perspective, it all starts with, you know, with light. From a marketing point of view, it kind of starts with the strategy and content. Yeah, exactly. I think that's probably one of the biggest bits of advice I would always say to anybody I spoke to is that break your business down. What do you want it to be? Now's a perfect opportunity to do it. Just take mm-hmm. half an hour to an hour pencil a few ideas out, start to work out, and then expand on it. And definitely have a look, see see what I, see what, uh, well, take a look at Michael Porter and see, apply your business into the five forces matrix and then see where you end up. See if your business is what you want it to be. Good advice. And what's the best bit of advice you received? Uh, Persevere and never give up. Um, So I got asked this recently, actually, and, it was interesting because when I got asked it, I was actually partway through the ventilator work and mm. it kind of gave me a bit of a, a bit of a kick to keep going because uh, I think it's very easy to actually to give up or think that you're doing the right thing and then not actually have the motivation to take the next step. And to be honest, I've, I've always gone by that line, really. Keep going and it'll pay off. Down Edom, thank you very much. It's been brilliant talking to you. And you, and you. Thank you for your time. Oh, pleasure. Take care. Thanks, Richard. Bye, everyone.